All right, we, we've been talking about being a healthy man. Uh, we, we, in, in week one, we talked about just some of the characteristics of a healthy man. And um, we've kind of expanded on that a little bit. Then we, we spent a good bit of time talking about the relationship between uh, the mind and the heart. That this is, this is what really makes us up as human beings. We have a body, we have a mind and a heart, and the heart is made up of the will and the emotions. And there's a direct link between the mind and the heart. Jesus, remember, says to the scribes, why are you thinking evil in your heart? So there's a, a direct link between the mind and the heart. In fact, there's a... Um, it's almost as if the mind and the heart are one. Alright? So keep that in mind. Um, then we, we, last week, um, we, we, I asked the question, um, what has more power over you, your mind or your heart? And we had a lot of different answers. I think most everybody felt like, well, the heart seems to have the greatest influence on our lives. Um, if you think about it, the heart can easily overcome or override what you know. And of course, it's, it's the, the seat of your emotions. And your emotions, which can be very powerful, have the ability to take charge of your thinking and override your thinking. I think it was, was Chris Hodges, who's the pastor out at Church of the Highlands, who said, you know, your feelings and emotions are very real. The problem is they're just not very reliable. Because, you know, I think most of the terrible decisions that people make are generally, well, not exclusively, but generally a result of your emotions and the desires of your heart and not sound thinking. <clears throat> and I, I use the example, when someone's life blows up, and I use the example, um, God bless him, Tiger Woods 10 years ago. I remember when, when, when everything kind of broke, I remember saying to myself, what was he thinking? What was he thinking? <clears throat> Clearly he wasn't. And then maybe you've said this before, where you've seen somebody mess up their lives and you say, you know, he should have known better than that. He should have known better than that. And then we're told in Proverbs 28, Solomon gives us some really interesting insight. And we could have a discussion on this, but we're not, because it could make for good discussion. But in Proverbs 26, he says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But then he goes and says, But he who walks wisely will be delivered. So he's really doing a contrasting here of listening to your heart, Versus having wisdom to help you make decisions and choices. And one of the reasons, you know why, one of the reasons he says, don't trust your heart. Because Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 79, the heart is more deceitful than all else. And so what do we do? Well... That's where wisdom comes in. And the verse that I read this morning, as we're talking about being healthy men, as we're talking about the emotions versus the mind, and then we talk about wisdom. As you think about wisdom, is more uh, impacts your thinking. But it also, we'll see, it impacts the heart as well. But listen to this. Uh, I'm not sure I hope I got the right verse. Here it is. Listen to what it tells us about wisdom as a man. A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases power. Now, what we said last week was one of the reasons wisdom is so beneficial is that it sees into the future. It sees into the future. In other words, it foresees the consequences of choices and decisions. And so maybe your heart is drawing you somewhere, but then all of a sudden your mind, you're, you're the, because of the wisdom you possess, you realize, 
that's not going to end up well for me if I pursue that. And, and I have to say this, from the work that we do, I mean, we have like 700 men that, that come through here each week. Maybe not that many that are involved in Bible studies, and everybody can't come here. But we have a lot of men that we're exposed to. And I'm amazed, we're all amazed at how men who are very well educated, very well informed, but they don't fully realize that their choices have consequences. I think sometimes we, we, we come to believe that we can make unwise, bad decisions, yet somehow end up with an exceptional life. And God says, no, it doesn't work that way. Don't be deceived. I will not be mocked. Whatever you sow, this you shall also reap. So guys, wise people are forward thinking. I mean, that's, that makes for a great businessman to be forward thinking and not just always caught up in the now. Always thinking and planning and recognizing that there are consequences over the choices and decisions you make. So wise people are forward thinking. They, they understand that all of life is connected and they recognize there is a, a cause and effect relationship between the choices we make today and the lives that we end up with tomorrow. And I, I shared this verse from Proverbs 2.7, but I, I read it from the message. And if you know what the message is, the message is a paraphrased Bible on steroids. But I'm not discounting it. I'm not saying you shouldn't read. I, I read, I came up with this verse. I read, the, I read the book of Proverbs in the message. It's just a modern paraphrase. But listen to this verse. It's really good and kind of, I think, encapsulates everything that we are talking about right now, being healthy men and wisdom. It says, wisdom is a rich mine, M-I-N-E. Wisdom is a rich mine of common sense for those who live well. And then listen to this. It serves as a personal bodyguard. Now that's strong, guys. Wisdom will serve you as a personal bodyguard. And living in the world that we live in today, we need that. We need a personal bodyguard. Now, I'm going to be real brief on this, and then we're going we're to launch into today's lesson. Um, <clears throat> we closed last week by saying, how does a person become wise? That's a good question. How does a person become wise? Well, remember where it starts? Proverbs 9, 10. What does he say is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? Now, I think everybody would agree it's to have great reverence for the God of the universe. But it's more than that. Because I think it's a legitimate fear that we should have. But we need to remember... What we're talking about is fearing our Heavenly Father who loves us. But this is the way I, I shared it last week. And if you were here, uh, you're going to hear it again. We all, so many of the, of the men in this room and all of you, on there, there are a lot of fathers here. And I have three children. They're all in their 20s. But when my oldest was six, my, my daughter was five, and my youngest was four. So they were all close together. And I used to come home from work, and I'd yell out, I'm home, and they'd all come running. And I loved it. They'd all come running, and then there'd be those days where two of them would come running, and one of them was still in their room. They'd gotten in trouble. And my wife would always say, wait till your father comes home. And there was a fear there. I say it was a healthy fear. Now, <clears throat> you know, Solomon says, don't spare the rod, and so I didn't. Um, I had a paddle, a wooden paddle. And it was kind of intimidating looking. But I only hit him once, and I didn't hit him that hard. And I never had to spank my daughter. And by the way, when you, when you just so any of you who are critical of, of spanking, let me just say this. What we're trying to, what the parent's trying to do is not punish the child. 
You're trying to discipline them. You're trying to correct an action. Now, my son, Will, my youngest, he got it once for lying to the babysitter. And that was a big deal at our house. You don't ever lie. And then my oldest got it a number of times. Got spanked quite a bit. I think he was the bigger, he was kind of a bit. I think it got to a point where it didn't really, one lick didn't hurt him that much. So it didn't, that, I don't know that he had the fear that the other two did. But where am I going with this? <clears throat> I believe that God says, I'm going to deal with you according to my word. And so you should fear disobeying me. You should fear disobeying me. You should fear also, sometimes God doesn't have, because he does say in Hebrews that he will discipline us as his children, as a father disciplines his child. But you know what? A lot of times, you know what God does? He just lets the, 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 the principle, the law of sowing and reap, reaping take over in your life. He doesn't smack you. We smack ourselves. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Then we said you have to want wisdom. And we should. Why? Because it's more valuable than silver and gold. <clears throat> but Solomon says you've got to pursue it. Proverbs 2, 3. If you seek her as silver and search for as, as for hidden treasure, you will find her. But you've got to seek it. And then what does James 1, 5 say? If any of you lacks wisdom, do what? Ask for wisdom. Guys, I'm curious. We've got a big group today. How many of you pray each day for wisdom? Good. I, well, I'm not looking for hands, but th uh, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> you should. Because he said, I mean, he is saying, if you ask, I'll give it. If you're still, in, if you're still working, and I know a number of you are, <clears throat> this is something you should be praying uh, about in your business every day. That God would give you wisdom as you're making decisions and choices and as you're planning. Pray for wisdom. Uh, fourth, we're, uh, we're, we talk about seeking it. Where do you seek it? Obviously in the Bible. You got the wisdom literature of the Bible. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. I know a lot of businessmen who read one psalm every day. Which means they read through it 12 times a year because there's 31 psalms. And the easy way to do it is this. What's today? The 2nd of February? They read the 2nd proverb. And it doesn't take long. Think about how much wisdom you could glean if you did that every day. And they're good books to read, whether it's all, you need wisdom on marriage. That's something I'm praying for right now. God, I pray that you'd give me wisdom how to really love my wife well. I'm, sometimes I wonder if I do. Um, but there are books on wisdom. There are books on marriage. There are books on raising children. Um, the, uh, the book that I wrote on wisdom is a great, it's my most, I think it's my most popular book. One of the guys yesterday on Thursday says he's, he's reading it for the third time. And if you don't have a copy, I'll give you one. I, I'm not trying to sell books. I'll give you a copy. I made this offer last week and a guy who's on here from Louisiana says, can I have 12? I said, sure. So one of the ways to seek wisdom is to read, starting with the scripture. Um, Proverbs 13, 20 says, he who walks with wise men will be wise. Seek wisdom from other men or women. Do you have any mentors? You know, the problem is you get older. <laughs> I was sharing this with a man the other day in his 80s. He says, well, you know, I ain't, got, I ain't got any older men in my life. All my friends are dead. But in all seriousness, are there people out there that you can go to and get advice from? Again, particularly maybe in your work. But you know, what if wisdom, guys, is a person that you can know and love and as you enter into a relationship with that person, you become wiser and wiser over time. And guys, that is the biblical message. Colossians 2.3 says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Guys, He is the source. Seek Him. Deepen your relationship with Him. And you will grow wiser over time. Let me stop. Comments or questions before we, we proceed? All right, you know what we hadn't really talked about? We spent so much time on the mind and the heart. 
the mind and the heart, the will and the emotions. But we haven't talked about the body. You know, what, what is the role of the body? Uh, I think it's easy to conclude that since we came from dust and we're going to return to dust, the body is not that important in the grand scheme of things. But that's not necessarily the case. Everybody, if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. All right, I want somebody to read 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul is telling us that your body is of great value. You know why? It's like a call. He's like a temple. And he says, you know why? And he's, he's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to the church at Corinth. He says, you know why? As a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. I was reading this just yesterday in uh, Ephesians 3. Um, it says that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounding love, but that Christ dwells in your heart through faith. And in 16 it says, and we are strengthened with power through His Holy Spirit in our innermost being. The Spirit of God resides in us. Our, our body is a temple and it's of great value. And it should be cared for and protected. Now, turn back a little further in the New Testament to 1 Timothy, if you would. Now, this is a significant verse. Now, I, I probably shouldn't say that. I, I think all the verses are significant, but this one's significant as it relates to what we're talking about. Very interesting verse. 1 Timothy 4. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has a value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. The first few words, physical training has what? It's of some value. Some value. It's of some value. Physical training, physical discipline. The, the New American says <clears throat> bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. He's talking about physical, uh, physical discipline. Or as NIV says, physical training. Notice what it says about disciplining your body. And I would include that working out, exercising, watch what you eat, watch what you put in it. Notice what he says, it's of some value. New America says it's of, it's, it is a value, but it's just a little value. But notice he doesn't say, guys, physical training, physical discipline is of great value. Why do you think that is? He's not saying you shouldn't do it. But he's just saying, hey, it's not of great value. Why? But don't you think he's saying that, and we'll see this in, in this verse that Charlie's here to quote for us in just a minute. Um, we're going to see our bodies are, are, are wasting away. I don't care how well you take care of it. You know what I think Paul's saying is physical distance, it's just short, it has short-term value to it. It has short-term value to it. And then he contrasts it with spiritual discipline that leads to godliness. And he says, this is where real value lies, guys. And what is the reason that he gives for spiritual discipline? Of why it's so of great value? All right. The first one is what? It, has, it says it what? The first thing. No, that's the second thing. What's the first thing he says? It has value. Look at it again. What does it say? It holds promise for the present life, right? In other words, he says, it has promise for your life today. But then, as everybody pointed out, the one that really stands out is, but it also has value for the life to come, eternity. Now, 
How does it benefit us? How does spiritual discipline, how does godliness benefit us in this life? Well, we've already talked about that. Godliness leads to wisdom. And look what wisdom can do. Wisdom, there's power in it. Wisdom helps you. It, <clears throat> the definition of wisdom from the Hebrew is the word muo, and you know what it means? To have a skill or expertise in living. How valuable would that be as you live this life? To be an expert in living this life. So it has great benefit in this life. <clears throat> and therefore you should discipline yourself spiritually for that reason. But he says it's also profitable for the life to come. You know, in Revelation 14, 13, <clears throat> it says our righteous deeds will follow us into eternity. Isn't that interesting? And isn't that what Jesus was referring to when he said in Matthew 6, 20, that every single Christian has the opportunity to lay up for themselves treasures in heaven. Now guys, I went back and looked at this. I, I, I have every lesson I've ever taught kind of indexed so I can go back and see what I've taught on in the past. In the last 20 years, I've talked about reward in heaven, I think, three times because everybody's interested in that. And it's been probably four or five years, so I'm probably due to teach on it again. Because Christian men, like yourselves, want to know, so how do I do that? And what is the reward? <coughs> so you hear the word reward, what does that make you think? It's what? It's something? It's a prize. Something good. Something you want. Something you will experience throughout eternity. But if you really want to read, and we'll, we'll, I, I you, we'll, we'll come back to this and talk about reward in heaven. Um, but one of the things that you will realize is that, and, and, the, and the best teaching on this, if you want to read it, is, is in 1 Corinthians 3. I think it starts in verse 6. It talks about um, that we, our, our, our works one day will be judged by fire. And either your works are wood, hay, and stubble, which will be burned up, or gold, silver, and precious stones, which will not. And the two things that he says that I think are significant there, and I'll just share this and then we'll move on. One, there'll be some people, some Christians that have no eternal reward. He says, but they'll have salvation. And that's what counts. And number two, and this is significant because the way we judge things today, we judge based on quantity. And it says your, your, your works will be, will be based or judged by the quality of your work. The quality of your work. The quality of your life. Now, I want to stay with this idea of discipline. And Paul talks about discipline in a very specific way in 1 Corinthians 9. And so if you're in Timothy, turn back to 1 Corinthians 9. And look at verses 24 to 27. So, would somebody read that? 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. We have a volunteer. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul is saying that the Christian life is like running a race. And I don't know if you noticed in the language he says, and he talked about being disciplined. And then he brings his body under submission. Why? And then I, 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 
which, what Sonny read from is also the, the New American Standards. It says, I make my body my slave. Guys, one of the worst things that can happen to a man's life is to be a slave to the desires of the body. To be a slave to the desire of the body. I don't know how many of you were here. I, I, let me read this, then I'll stop and see if you have a comment or question. I don't know if you remember, I shared this several years ago. And it came from a book by a guy by the name of Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. And it was titled The Happiness Hypothesis. It was a really good book. He's not a Christian. Uh, he's a professor uh, in the business school at NYU. <clears throat> but he seems to have a really good insight into the human condition. <clears throat> and in the book, he speaks of this guy by the name of Emil Durkheim. It's a German name. D-U-R-K-H-E-I-M. Durkheim. <clears throat> and this guy was one of the founders of sociology back in the late 19th century. He's dead. But what he did, he spent a great deal of time, he got all these researchers together, and they performed a massive scholarly study gathering data from all across Europe, studying the factors that affect the suicide rate. Well, that's interesting. They looked at all the fact, they went to all these people who had killed themselves, <clears throat> and they looked at all the factors in that person's life. They interviewed their family, their friends, all that. And Durkham said, all of my findings can be summarized in one word. Interesting. One word. Constraints. Particularly constraints that you place on yourself. You see, he discovered that no matter how he parsed the data, people who placed fewer constraints on their lives were more likely to kill themselves. He concluded that from all of his research, people need constraints. They need certain disciplines in their lives to provide structure and meaning in their lives. You know what he's telling us? Healthy men are disciplined men. Now think about discipline. We're not too far from January 1st, and I, I, I'm venturing to say that all the men in the groups, some of, a lot of people said, you know, I'm going I'm I'm to put a new discipline in place January 1st. Another way to maybe look at it is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to build a new habit into my life. Now, if you feel like there's some, some habit you need, to begin, you need to implement in your life, or some discipline that you want to begin to apply to your life, usually it's because you realize it's going to be good for you, but also it's probably that there's going to be some degree of difficulty. <clears throat> because you're not doing it now, usually because it's probably kind of difficult. But if you stick with it, if you begin to embark on establishing a new habit, if you really stick with it, <clears throat> Think about this. Does it stay difficult? You see, if we persist in our efforts over time, you know what will happen with that habit you're trying to establish? It will become easier. Not because the nature of the task has changed, but you know what happens? Your ability to do it increases. Your ability to do it increases. And I always use the example of my wife taking up swimming. Some of you heard this. Ten years ago, and my wife exercises almost every day. She's got a trainer. She, 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 she likes to be fit. For whatever reason, though, she decided, I'm going to start swimming for, my, for, for exercise. The problem was she wasn't a very good swimmer. I mean, she could swim, but she hadn't spent much time swimming in her life. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, I hate swimming. I don't know why you want to do that. <clears throat> well, she embarked. And after the first week, she said, this is miserable. I'm not very good. 
And I, sw I, I swallow a lot of pool water when I try to make my turn. And my suggestion was, why don't you quit? You got plenty going on. Give it up. I think that challenged her to continue, which she did. And here we are 10 years later. And guys, she's a great swimmer. She had a, a, an older gentleman ask her at the Y, where she swims, <clears throat> where did you swim collegiately? Because she has such a good stroke. And you know what? She really enjoys it. She really likes doing it. Where she hated it when she started it, but now she loves it. What happened? Nothing has changed about the nature of swimming. But her ability to do it has increased to the point that she really enjoys it, and it's so good for her, her, her health. You know, somebody yesterday pointed out <clears throat> this also works in breaking a habit. He was talking about a habit in his own life that he was seeking to break. And what, you know what he told me? He says, getting started is really hard. But he says, I'm six weeks into it, and it's like the habit doesn't even exist anymore. It has no impact on my life. <clears throat> I love what John Piper said about this. All training is painful and frustrating as you seek to develop certain skills. However, over time, as these skills become second nature, they lead to greater joy. And not only that, it impacts your mental and emotional health. It will make you a healthier person. Now, let's look at one final issue as it relates to the body. And I really think, guys, you'll find this to be very meaningful. And it comes from 2 Corinthians 4.16, which Charlie tried to share last week, and I stopped him and said, Charlie, we're going to get to that verse. So, Charlie, why don't you tell the group, because it is a great verse. Therefore, we do not lose hope. Though our outer bodies are decaying, yet our inner bodies are being renewed day by day. Did you hear that? We do not lose heart. Even though our outer body is decaying, yet our inner body, our inner man, is being renewed day by day by day. Now, <clears throat> think about what Paul's telling us. And he's talking to the church of Corinth. He's talking to Christians. Because he says we. He doesn't say I. He says we do not lose heart. We as Christians do not lose, lose heart. <clears throat> but you know what else I think he's clearly saying? Those outside the faith will find themselves losing heart as they watch their bodies waste away. And as I look around at this group and our age, you know that your body is deteriorating. I don't care how good you take care of it. You know it is deteriorating. So think about it. If you don't have faith in Christ, why would you lose heart over watching your body waste away? <clears throat> well, I think it's a grim reminder that your life is coming to an end. Because people outside of the faith have believed that this life's all there is, this life's all that matters, which is fine when you're in your 30s and your 40s, but then you get in your 50s and 60s and 70s, and you begin to realize, <clears throat> my life's going to come to an end. And so they lose heart. In the blog that I wrote, well, it was on the 20, it was two weeks ago, I wrote about Blaise Pascal who, was, who talked about um, why human beings are so unhappy. Now he wrote this 400 years ago. And he says the reason human beings are so unhappy is because of their mortality. They start to realize, I'm going to die and there's nothing I can do about it. And he says, your, 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 your mortal condition is the most obvious fact of life. 
He says it slaps you in the face all the time. He says, deep down, we're haunted by the fact that when we die, we will experience the loss of everything. Our relationships, everything that we've built up, we lose it all. And he says, and it's, it creates not only unhappiness, but it's a great fear. And he says, and the problem is, men don't talk about it. We don't talk about it, because, you know, we're not supposed to be afraid. And he says, so what do we do? How do people deal with it? They look for diversions. And you know what the, the, the number one diversion is? Pleasure. This is what he says. The only good thing for men, therefore, is to be diverted from thinking of what they are, either by some occupation which takes their mind off it, or by some novel and agreeable passion that keeps them busy, like gambling. This is 400 years ago. Gambling. Hunting. Some absor uh, uh, absorbing show, entertainment. In short, by what he calls diversion. We hadn't changed much. We just got more diversions now than they did back then. And that's why he said, you know what we as human beings are? We are fugitives from reality. And that if you really want to be healthy, you have to be persuaded to have the courage to face the truth about yourself and your mortality and all the issues that spring from it. And so, guys, Pascal is confirming Paul's words. People are fearful and lose heart over their mortality. We never talk about it. I mean, you don't see guys, you get a bunch of guys together, they don't talk about it. It's too morbid. But Paul says as Christians, we don't lose heart. Because we spiritually should be renewing ourselves day by day by day. That's why Paul tells us in the book of Philippians, for me to live my life is to live for Christ. Philippians 1.21. He says, because why? He says, to die is to gain. You see, eternal life is far better than life in this broken, sinful world where our bodies are wasting away. In the book that I wrote, I think it was like 10 or 11 years ago called Safe Passage. I'm going to quote from it right at the end. It's called Thinking Clearly About Life and Death. Um, in the research, this is pretty interesting. I was amazed, guys, at the number of famous atheists who were terrified of dying. And you have to ask yourself, why in the world would that be the case? They're so confident about their atheism that there is no God. Why in the world would they be terrified? I mean, we're talking about Voltaire. You know who the biggest, biggest coward was? was? Was Freud. Bertrand Russell. Stalin. Charles Darwin. But the one who finally, he was a Greek philosopher, he was an atheist, and he finally figured out what the problem was. His name was Epicurus. And he said, you know, if we could be sure that death was annihilation, and annihilation means when you die, you don't exist anymore. There's nothingness there. He says, if we could be sure of that, of that, there'd be nothing to fear of. But we can't be totally sure there is annihilation, for what people fear the most is not that maybe death is annihilation, but that maybe death is not. In other words, he's saying maybe, as Job said, when you die, you'll live again. Or he asked the question, when you die, will you live again? Is there life after this life? Is there heaven? Is there hell? And of course, that, guys, that's where hope comes in. That's what we have as Christians. We have hope. Remember, hope is a life-shaping certainty of something that has not happened yet, but you know will at some point in the future. But the question is, who or what do we put our hope in? According to Paul, as Christians... We put our hope, I love this, in the God who raises the dead. Not just any God, but the God who raises the dead. He says, that's who we put our hope in. Now, I've got uh, two really encouraging stories that validate everything that we've said. The first comes from a guy by the name of Dr. David Nelson, who was a 19th century physician. Uh, he was a very good doctor. He didn't believe in God. 
But he said, I had the opportunity to sit at, at the bedside of many of my patients as they, as they lay dying. And he said, I kept a record of it. He wrote about all those experiences of watching people die. And he says, I would look into the face of the terminally ill and watch many of them die with no religious faith and they would try and keep a brave face on their terror. He said, but I could see the fear in their countenance. It was quite chilling. And he said, I saw many people die cowardly deaths. And he said, as I watched this, as a non-believer, I also had the opportunity to watch Christians die. And he said, and I looked in their faces, I noticed a sense of tranquility. This is what he recorded. I beheld more celestial triumph than I've ever witnessed anywhere else. In their voice there was a sweetness. In their eye was a glory that I never would have believed if I had not been there witnessing it myself. And he said it eventually led him to become a very serious Christian with a strong faith in Christ. And he said the main reason is because I saw the reality of Jesus in the lives of those dying Christians. As someone said, wrote back in the, in the day when the Christians were being fed to the lion, lions, he said, my people die well. My people die well. This second story is quite chilling, but it's worth reading. It's by uh, an author, Mark Buchanan, who shares a powerful story from when he was a pastor. He says it was a late Saturday evening as he read over his sermon for the next morning and I was getting into bed and the phone rings. And it was a nurse from the local hospital who was terrified over one of these patients who was dying. She says, There's, this man's dying. His, his health is quickly going downhill. In his final moments, he, she said, overflowed with this extreme anguish. And he was howling. And he was writhing. <clears throat> and she said, I need your help. She said, the man's family is terrified. And she said, would you come to, help, come to the hospital to help us? He said, he arrived at the patient's bedside and he witnessed something. He says, I will never forget. The man was twisting his limbs were flying everywhere. He was thrashing. He was moaning. But the worst part was the look of terror on this man's face. He was clearly glimpsing into hell. He said, I didn't know what to do. So I prayed, Lord, help me, please. And he said, I, find, I put my hand on him. And I began to pray, shalom, which means peace. And she said, he said, the dying man began to settle down. His breathing returned to normal. His body stopped writhing. He became lucid again and understandable. We began to talk. The pastor asked the man if he knew Jesus Christ. It turned out 25 years ago I had some kind of spiritual experience. But he said, I never surrendered my life to Christ. He said, Buchanan proceeded to lead the man and he led the man and his wife <coughs> into a relationship with Christ. And he said, suddenly, an incredible feeling of peace encompassed the room. He talked to the dying man about what he could expect in heaven. He said, I left the hospital to go home, but there was this tangible light and spirit of celebration in that room. The next morning after the church, Service, He said, I stopped by the hospital to see if the man had made it through the night. And uh, pausing at the nursing stations, he told, he said, the man, yeah, he's still alive. Buchanan walked in the hospital room. He says, I didn't recognize this man. His life had been so transformed that he radiated, radiated joy and strength and vitality. And he said, after that day, he said, I never saw the man again. But it was, it was a year later, he said, I was, I'd finished church, last one leaving the building, but I noticed there was a woman lingering in the back of the sanctuary. And it was the man's wife from the hospital of a year earlier. 
But Cannon e uh, eagerly asked her about, how's your husband? She said, you're not going to believe this. He just died last week. He lived another year. He just died last week. She said, but those last few days on earth were the best days of our entire marriage because he was filled with such joy and such peace. Guys, there's a book I want to recommend you consider getting. I'm going to wrap this up real quick. It's called Imagine Heaven. Um, it was recommended to me by a very close friend who gave me a copy. Now, I would never have read this book. It was on near-death experiences. You know what a near-death experience is? Somebody dies for a period of time and then comes back to life, is revived. And there's this guy, oh, his last name is Burke. I don't remember his first name. It's called Imagine Heaven. You get it on Amazon. This guy's the real deal. He spent several years researching this, interviewing people that had near-death experiences. He says, I wouldn't interview anybody that wanted money for their story. I just wanted to hear people, legitimate people, tell their story. Uh, it was uh, on the New York Times bestseller for several weeks. I never really knew what the book was. Imagine Heaven. I just figured it was just, you know. But it is nonfiction. It's kind of like a documentary in one sense. And guys, the Christians, and there are many that he interviewed. And it's incredible what they experienced. But this is the one thing I want to tell you. Every single Christian that he interviewed, and most everybody he interviewed were believers. There were a couple, that did, there were a number that didn't. And you can read that too. But not a one of them wanted to come back. Once they were there... Not a one of them wanted to come back. And a lot of them were married with kids. I don't want to go back. Because this is such a glorious place. Guys, that's what we have to look forward to. And so I ask you this morning, are you being spiritually renewed day by day? Because I think it's critical if we are not to lose heart over the fact that our bodies are wasting away. And so truly healthy men, particularly those in the second half of life, don't lose heart and don't live in fear because their hearts are being renewed day by day and therefore they look forward to going home and being with their Heavenly Father. This is what hope does. It impacts life in the here and now, even if you're in your 60s and 70s. You don't lose heart. You look forward to what lies ahead. And what, what, the one thing, and this is what I want to close with, most Christians, I don't think most Christians realize that one day, guys, you're going to have a permanent glorified body. I, for some reason, we think we're just going to be spiritual beings. And who wants to be just a spiritual being? We're going to have a body like you have right now. And you see this in Scripture, you see this in the Old and New Testament. Go read Psalm, uh, Isaiah 25, 1, some, or uh, read the in the 25th chapter of Isaiah. He talks about the big celebration of heaven. And you'll be eating and drinking and celebrating. That's incredible. Uh, but let me read one verse to you because we don't have time. I, there's a lot of Scripture, but we just don't have time to read it. I'm going to read this one. This is from Philippians chapter 3. Verses 20 and 21. Listen to what Paul tells us. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. The body Paul is referring to will not be received until Christ's return. But this is what confuses people. Because when we initially die, it says we will be absent from our earthly bodies, which is okay. Paul says we will be, but we will be present with the Lord. When to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And we will be in God's presence in what is called paradise. And Jesus sounded the same theme 
in his words to the thief on the cross, who he's saying, he didn't say this, but he's saying, bottom line is, uh, you're dying. And your body is going to be put into a grave. But what did he tell him? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, I want to close by reading. This won't take but a minute. We'll be done. I just want to read a couple of words from this book on what heaven is like. Say passage. What most people do not realize is that our final state, our minds and our souls, will be united with a new resurrected body. This expectation is at the heart of Christian belief. It's witnessed at the end of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body. This is not referring to Christ's resurrection, but to His followers who submit their lives to the belief of the Creed. The Apostle Paul expounds upon the resurrection of the body when he says, For we know that if, if the earthly tent, and he's referring to our bodies being like an earthly tent, he says, If this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made by man, but one that is eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this present frame we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. It's not surprising that Paul who from time to time would make tents to support himself financially, would use the illustration of an earthly tent to describe our earthly bodies. A tent is an impermanent structure that over time wears out and eventually decays. He points out that when our earthly bodies die, they will be replaced by a permanent structure, a glorified body that will never pass away. Most Christian theologians agree that the new glorified body we receive will resemble Christ's resurrected body. In other words, it was clearly a physical body. His resurrection was not a spiritual, supernatural event. The resurrected Christ eats and drinks with those whom He appears. Thomas, the doubting disciple, touches His crucified body to confirm that it is real. Jesus' resurrected body points to the eternal bodies that we will one day possess. These will be real bodies so that we can taste and touch and experience pleasure. And I'm convinced this is why the psalmist says in Psalm 1611, In God's right hand, there are pleasures forever. <clears throat> Guys, we will clearly be people with physical bodies in heaven who will experience pleasure forever. And it will be a healthy, joyful pleasure in God's presence that not only will bring us great delight, but will be well-pleasing to Him. Guys... Y'all been a great audience. We got to stop because it's a little after eight. And so uh, I'm going to close. And then if you want to stick around and talk, that's great. Father, thank you for this time. We thank you for the hope that you give us as we put our hope in you, the God who raises the dead. And we have this glorious future waiting us. And therefore, we do not lose heart. But I pray that we would play our part of being renewed spiritually day by day by day as we seek you in the scriptures, as we pray, as we walk with you through life. So we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.